The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. We did it. We did it. Cheers in Ohio last night, a Republican state where voters approved a ballot measure to enshrine the right to an abortion in the state constitution. That gives abortion rights a 7-0 to winning streak on state ballots since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. Abortion rights may not have been on the ballot in other states, but it was the driving issue in races in Kentucky and Virginia, where it trounced the opposition, beating back an attempted reframing of the issues by Republicans. Thank you, Kentucky! Democratic Governor Andy Beshear resoundingly won re-election in the red state of Kentucky. His opponent, Republican Attorney General Daniel Cameron, was endorsed by Trump and supported the state's near-total ban on abortion, while Bashir placed abortion rights front and center in his campaign. Kentucky made a choice. A choice not to move to the right or to the left, but to move forward for every single family. Joining me is Mary Ziegler, a professor at UC Davis Law School. Her new book is Roe, The History of a National Obsession. Mary, was the 2023 election cycle a big test for the question of whether protecting abortion rights wins elections? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there was already a lot of evidence that protecting abortion rights wins elections, but I think any doubt on that matter was resolved pretty decisively. So Ohio, 57% of Ohio voters cast their ballot in favor of the constitutional amendment to codify abortion access, despite a significant array of obstacles in a red state, purging of 26,000 people on the voter rolls. And the Republican secretary of state, who was anti-abortion, changed the language on the ballot measure, referring to a fetus as an unborn child. Tell us about the obstacles that Republicans put in the way of this constitutional amendment. There have been a lot of obstacles. Republicans began by trying to lift the the threshold for passage of a ballot initiative, um, and that proposal was defeated by Ohio voters in August. There's been information published on official government websites in Ohio giving a misleading account of what issue on the ballot initiative would have meant. There's in the, you know, the language, anti-abortion language used to describe what voters were choosing. And yet, you know, despite all of that, there's been polling on the ballot initiative actually been pretty remarkably consistent for some time now. So voters had made up their minds and all of these various strategies by Republicans didn't work. Yeah. And also making it a no vote in August, but a yes vote in November. It seems like the Republicans were just trying to sow confusion rather than winning on the issue. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the things that's striking. There hasn't really been an effort in Ohio to convince voters that abortion rights were a bad idea on the merits. Instead, there have been efforts to stop voters 
either from understanding the issue or deciding it. And that obviously tells you Ohio Republicans were in trouble, right? If, if you yourself concede that your position is that unpopular, you're not starting from a position of strength. So Susan B. Anthony Pro-Life America Group is saying it lost in Ohio because voters incorrectly believe pregnant patients could be denied life-saving medical care. What do you think of the response of the you know, anti-abortion groups to this? I mean, I think that you're seeing a lot of a lot of excuses, really. Um, I mean, I think that if you uh, have lost seven of seven ballot initiative fights, the idea that that's all based on voters' misunderstanding of the issues isn't really a credible explanation. I mean, I think it's certainly true that the workings of abortion bans have been consequential um, in the sense that physicians aren't comfortable applying exceptions to people with wanted pregnancies who are in life-threatening situations. But I think by the same token, if you've lost seven of seven valid initiative races in the space of a year, um, the problem is not, you know, just packaging or funding. The, the problem is substance. And I think that's becoming increasingly clear. You mentioned the seven to zero winning streak on the ballot initiative since Roe was overturned. What have the abortion rights advocates been doing to be so effective? I mean, I think, first of all, um, they have the advantage of what Republicans are doing in a lot of states, right? So Republicans in Virginia, for example, tried to say, oh, hey, you know, the Democrats are extreme because they don't want there to be any restrictions on abortion. And it's been easy for Democrats to parry that attack by pointing to the bans that are actually on the books in large swaths of the country that are not, you know, moderate compromises at all. I think the other thing that abortion rights supporters have done relatively well is to realize that ballot initiatives are very much the politics of the local so a message that will work in Ohio will not necessarily work in California or Kansas, that you have to tailor what you're saying, how you write your ballot initiative, what arguments you make for it to the audience in that state. And I think that's been pretty successfully done, too, so far. So you, you mentioned Virginia, and it seemed like anti-abortion leaders were testing some new tactics this cycle, mm-hmm. rebranding. They didn't call them abortion bans, but rather limits. And you mentioned Mm -hmm. fear-mongering about Democrats wanting abortion up until birth. And it seemed like Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin used those tactics in his campaign to try to get Republican control of both state houses, which, of course, failed. How important was the abortion issue there, even though it wasn't on the ballot? It was pretty important. I mean, I think Governor Youngkin was on the record as saying that he was piloting what he saw as a potential way forward for Republicans on abortion in every state. And that was to go on the offense and essentially accuse Democrats of being the real extremists on abortion and using, like you said, a limit, as Youngkin would have framed it, to uh, rally Republicans around. And that obviously didn't work. And if anything, it seemed that the abortion issue helped Democrats, I think, achieve a surprisingly good result in Virginia and taking control of both houses of the Virginia legislature. And I think, you know, the reason it didn't work is because I think Youngkin was using an old playbook. Before Roe was gone, uh, Republicans would hold up, you know, regulations that were popular in isolation, like a 15-week ban or a ban on so-called partial birth abortion, and say, you know, aren't you for this, voters? And a lot of voters would say, sure, you know, that sounds reasonable. But now when Democrats say that isn't really what where Glenn Youngkin wants to stop, that's as much as he thinks he can get today, 
but tomorrow he's going to come back and ask for a six-week ban or a ban at fertilization. That argument has a lot more credibility with voters because, of course, you know, anti-abortion activists are admitting as much, anti-abortion politicians are admitting as much. There's many state bans that already go that far. So when Youngkin claims to be the voice of moderation and reason, it doesn't have the same force it would have before Dobbs. So I, I think that's one of the reasons that strategy didn't actually play out as Youngkin had planned. Youngkin was pushing this 15-week abortion ban. Why do Republicans think that that's a compromised position that would be acceptable? And I think where they're getting 15 weeks is a combination of that's just what Dobbs upheld. So it's had some sort of resonance for Republicans for that reason. And also because there are polls suggesting that as much as Americans' support for abortion throughout pregnancy has continued um, in recent years, that there's still less support later rather than earlier in pregnancy. And so I think what you're seeing is Republicans trying to leverage that and, and say, you know, we're going to focus on a ban at a point we think Americans will be more on board, and we're going to say that that's actually our focus rather than a ban from fertilization. And they're expecting people to credit that, right? Um, and I think, again, the problem is not it's twofold. And one, I think fewer Americans support a ban at 15 weeks than would have been the case several years ago. And two, you're seeing uh, the fact that voters just don't believe that Republicans are actually interested in a 15-week ban. They see a 15-week ban as a sort of compromise that Republicans are forging at the moment because they can't get anything more than that, but that they would go much further in banning abortion if they had the opportunity. Coming up next, I'll continue this conversation with UC Davis professor Mary Ziegler. Will there be more constitutional amendments to protect access to abortion on the ballots in other states in 2024? And attempts to stop travel out of state to get an abortion. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Abortion rights may not have been on the ballot, but it was the driving issue in races in Kentucky and Virginia where it trounced the opposition. In Kentucky, a state that Trump won by 26 points, voters resoundingly reelected Democratic Governor Andy Bashir. He won over Trump-endorsed Republican Attorney General Daniel Cameron, who supports the state's near-total ban on abortion. Bashir placed abortion rights front and center in his campaign and ran a sharp attack ad against Cameron, where a woman described being raped by her stepfather when she was 12. This is to you, Daniel Cameron. To tell a 12-year-old girl she must have the baby of her stepfather who raped her is unthinkable. I'm speaking out because women and girls need to have options. Daniel Cameron would give us none. I've been talking to Mary Ziegler, a professor at UC Davis Law School. Mary, what do you think of the use of attack ads like that? Well, I think what you're seeing in the fight between Cameron and Bashir is sort of the mirror image of what happens when you try to do the opposite of what Glenn Youngkin did. So 
at least at the beginning of his campaign, Daniel Cameron said, I'm not going to run away from my position on abortion. I'm going to make it part of my campaign. I'm going to emphasize that I've been in court. I've been the one fighting for Kentucky's abortion ban. Like, I'm I'm Mr. Anti-Abortion, right? And Bashir was happy to have him do that because then Bashir could say, you know, I, I am the voice of reason, right? And, and not even really have to get into questions about abortion that would be tricky in Kentucky, right? He could focus on things like victims of sexual assault and accuse Cameron of being heartless toward those patients and leave any of the trickier questions in a red state like Kentucky off the table. So I think that the lesson is that whether you're trying to strike a kind of faux moderate tone like Youngkin or you're trying to, you know, run to energize the base, which I think is what Cameron was doing, that there are perils either way. And that's, I think, what we saw yesterday. Constitutional amendments to protect abortion access are already on the ballot for 2024 in Maryland and New York. What other states do you see there's momentum to put abortion rights on the ballot next year? Probably the most consequential is Florida. Um, as you mentioned, New York and Maryland um, are not in any real jeopardy of changing their abortion policy significantly absent the constitutional amendment. So those would be more along the lines of proposals you've seen in states like California or Vermont, where you're expanding on existing protections. Florida um, has a very conservative state Supreme Court that is likely to overturn a 1989 precedent recognizing state abortion rights. So absent intervention by voters, you're likely to see Florida's six-week ban go into effect in the not-too-distant future. Florida is more complicated simply because Well, there are two reasons. One, Florida has a 60% threshold for passing ballot initiatives. And second, uh, there's already a challenge before the Florida Supreme Court, which, as I mentioned, is very conservative, by the Attorney General Ashley Moody that's attempting to get that issue off the ballot by essentially arguing it's confusing to voters. So this is another kind of parallel to what we saw in Ohio, where Republicans are trying to keep voters from weighing in. But this time they're relying on a very conservative state Supreme Court, which may be a more successful strategy. Do you see any sort of cracks in the abortion activists' arguments or, you know, the way they're framing things or campaign that Republicans or abortion opponents could use in 2024 to defeat ballot measures or to defeat pro-abortion candidates? I mean, I think the cracks mostly are at the federal level, right? So I think the person who's on the Republican side who's played the abortion issue the best so far is Donald Trump. Now, you know, you can't praise Donald Trump too much for it because he's in the enviable position of basically having a glide path to the nomination regardless of what he says about abortion. So he quite simply just doesn't need to worry about offending primary voters on abortion because he's going to win the nomination anyway. But I think Trump has convinced a lot of Americans, I think inaccurately in my view, that he really isn't actually going to do anything on abortion in office and that he thinks it would be a mistake to do so. And I think, you know, there are plenty of things Trump would and I think could do without Congress were he to be elected again. And I think that's probably the best move Republicans can make to either 
lie or rely on courts, as you're seeing in Florida, essentially kick the ball to another court and blame the courts for whatever's going to happen on abortion. I think the idea that the, the question is about fundraising or messaging, as various Republican candidates have suggested, kind of misses the point. Well, Trump at one point was taking credit for turning the Supreme Court so conservative and for appointing justices who were anti-abortion. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, the other thing, too, obviously, is like if you just think about how Donald Trump usually operates, it's based on self-interest. So at the moment, it's in his self-interest to say that abortion is, you know, an issue that Republicans need to compromise on because Trump needs to get into office. But when Trump is in office, the calculus will be very different, right? I mean, he'll be still looking to raise money from voters who like him, as he has pretty much his entire time out of office. He'll be looking for close allies to join him in his effort to transform the DOJ and pursue vendettas against political enemies. He may be looking for ways to stay in power after his 2024 term is up. And in all of that, um, it's going to make more sense for him to try to energize and strengthen ties to the base than it would to, you know, essentially appeal to general voters who are not going to be interested in his revenge campaign or his staying in office permanently. So I think um, that's a big part of why you have to take Trump's current positioning on this with a grain of salt. It's been more than a year since the Supreme Court overturned Roe, and abortion is almost completely outlawed in 15 states. Yet the number of abortions done in the U.S. has, by some estimates, fallen by only about 2,900 procedures per month. Is that due to the abortion pill? Yeah, I mean, I think that the data we have so far suggest either that patients are crossing state lines to get abortions, Essentially, you know, the abortion rate in states adjacent to banned states has gone up significantly, and they're getting abortion pills online. So part of, you know, the other thing that's interesting is that the GOP is really damaging its cause by going to the wall for these bans, and then ultimately the bans aren't even working to lower the rate of abortions. And abortion opponents in some states are trying to find ways to limit a woman's ability to leave the state to access abortion, relying on novel legal strategies and targeting those who assist pregnant women in traveling for care. For example, Alabama's attorney general declared that his office had the power to prosecute people who help residents leave the state for an abortion by using criminal conspiracy laws. And a handful of counties in Texas have passed ordinances outlawing using their roads to drive someone out of state for an abortion. Do you think any of these kinds of measures would survive a legal challenge? I mean, I don't know, right? And I think this is the potential ace in the hole for Republicans, that if they don't have voters, they may have the courts. Because some of these questions about the full faith and credit cause and the right to travel. I think many of these laws would be unconstitutional, but I also acknowledge that a lot of these areas of law are really underdeveloped and that there haven't been courts who've weighed in on these questions for decades. And so that means that there are possibilities that you could get conservative federal judges to side with you when voters will not. And I think that's really kind of the wild card. One, whether courts will do that. And two, whether Donald Trump can get into office, as polls suggest he will, and then uh, achieve outcomes that voters would reject just using the executive branch power alone. 
these laws are also designed to frighten people, not to help people get abortions. Have doctors been delaying or denying care, even in states with exceptions to abortion bans? Absolutely. I mean, in states with abortion bans, um, we've seen a lot of doctors hesitating to provide care, even in cases where they would have a very good argument that um, they could act without legal penalty because the downsides of being wrong are so significant, right? They're like up to life in prison. So, and physicians as a group are not, you know, particularly risk (laughs) tolerant, right? It's a group of people who have invested a lot in managing risk and in their own careers who are not interested in, in jeopardizing all of that. So many unanswered questions in this area. Thanks so much, Mary. That's Mary Ziegler, a professor at UC Davis Law School. Coming up, will John Eastman lose his license to practice law? This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. All we are demanding of Vice President Pence is this afternoon at one o'clock he let the legislatures of the state look into this so we get to the bottom of it and the American people know whether we have control of the direction of our government or not. That was Trump attorney John Eastman at the rally on January 6th before the march to the Capitol. He was one of the chief architects of Trump's failed efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election. And he's one of the 18 defendants charged along with Trump with racketeering for their efforts to overturn the election in Georgia. Eastman is also fighting to retain his law license in California. There have been 33 days of trial in the California State Bar Court, the nation's only court devoted entirely to lawyer discipline, and more than 800 exhibits have been submitted. The bar's 11-count notice of discipline includes charges that Eastman violated ethical and legal obligations for allegedly conspiring with Trump to disrupt the electoral count on January 6th. Among the claims is that Eastman pressured then-Vice President Mike Pence to violate the law and override every branch of government by throwing out electoral votes. Eastman claims he had a good faith basis to doubt the results of the election and a First Amendment right to speak out as a private citizen. Joining me is Joyce Cutler, a correspondent for Bloomberg Law. So what started this action by the California Bar? There is a complaint file against John Eastman. Among them were 1,200 attorneys, former judges, for uh, violating California ethical and bar rules. There are several complaints against him. Uh, you know, it goes back in a large part to his actions last in the fall of 2019 and into, into 2020. There are comments made, uh, that he made to a podcast Bannon's War Room. There are comments he made to a, a rally on January 6th at the Ellipse. There were memos that he wrote, two memos he wrote for the Trump campaign. There were comments he made about the Dominion Electronic Voting, about uh, emails he made to Vice President Mike Pence's chief counsel, misrepresentations in an article in a publication called The American Mind. 
uh, regarding alleged fraud in Georgia and Michigan. They all had to do with his conduct or comments he made while basically acting as a lawyer. So he took the stand. Tell us basically what was his argument. He seemed to be saying that, you know, what he did was legal. Yes. He said several things. One, he was in good conscience acting as a zealous advocate for his client, Trump and the Trump campaign. And he said he was, you know, giving legal advice. And attorneys should be able to freely give legal advice, all forms of it, when you're laying out all such scenarios, and should be able to do that without being prosecuted. He also said he had a First Amendment right to stand up and make those comments on January 6th under the First Amendment. So there were, what, 33 days of trial. Who was, would you say, the, the best witness against him? Stanford constitutional scholar by the name of Matthew Grimmer. He had some really impressive testimony about there was no foundation for Eastman's arguments. There was no legal basis for alternate electors theory. There was nothing in constitutional law, in the Constitution, in the law, anywhere. Matthew Seligman uh, is a, a fellow at the Constitutional Law Center at Stanford Law School. And he said there is nothing in the 12th Amendment or elsewhere in legal principles to back up his theories. And Eastman was known as, as a constitutional, a conservative constitutional uh, law scholar as well. So that you had someone who was his equal, shall we say, come up with an argument saying there's nothing there was interesting. Uh, it was also something that they kept coming back to during the trial. And the best witness for Eastman? It was John Yu. Uh, John Yu, a uh, UC Berkeley law professor, also a uh, you know, conservative law scholar. Uh, he was best known for writing what was called the torture memos during the Bush administration. So, and he's been a friend with John Eastman for years. Their kids grew up, you know, they watched each other's kids grow up. And he said, you know, John Eastman was right on the law, but not right about the actions he took uh, to support Trump. And that was interesting. Because you here you have someone who is a you know, long-term good friend, and you know they'd known each other for years and years, and and also someone who's respected in the conservative circles, uh, saying, "Yeah, he's right on about lo- the law." You know, there are ways you could read the Constitution that you could interpret, you know, in a broad sense that there was uncertainty whether it was the vice president who had the authority to actually count and make determination. And you was on the stand a couple of days. You could tell in some ways he was pained. And he, he said he, it hurt to see some of what happened with some of his friends in arguing for Trump. Tell me what his First Amendment argument is. His First Amendment argument is that he has a right as a citizen to, to speak out. That's pretty much what it comes down to. And he said he was speaking to the public and that his remarks did not create such an imminent harm, meaning they didn't propel people on the ellipse to go and raid the Capitol. So there was enough of a distance between his remarks and the actions leading up to the attack on the U.S. Capitol. But lawyers have different kinds of responsibilities and are under different limitations, right? And California lawyers are enjoined from knowingly making false statements of fact or law to a tribunal, failing to correct false statements of material fact or law previously made, and offering evidence that they know to be false. So how does that impact his First Amendment argument? I didn't come across any lawyer I spoke to, any law professor, who said, 
Eastman's First Amendment right trumped his obligations as a lawyer and as an officer of the court to support the Constitution. The lawyers that I interviewed and the professors I interviewed didn't find any support for Eastman's arguments that his First Amendment right was greater than his obligation as an officer of the court to uphold what is required of all lawyers, and that's to uphold the Constitution. The judge made a preliminary finding of culpability. Tell us about that. Yes, that's, it's a procedural finding, but it's an interesting one. But the procedural finding that she found the charges credible allowed the bar to introduce aggravating witnesses and uh, continue with introducing and reintroducing witnesses to testify uh, who can say this is what happened because of his actions. That's why you had two election officials, you know, in Pennsylvania and Arizona discuss what happened to their offices, what happened to the other election officials, you know, what consequences were from the actions of Eastman and others. And I qualified because each of them went on cross-examination, said, you know, they couldn't point to Eastman's remarks specifically, you know, to cause harm to where they had to have extra security. It was the constellation of voices, and Eastman's was one of them. Is it a fine line between a lawyer advocating for his client and making an argument as opposed to going too far in those arguments so as to make it unethical? It's not so fine a line that the majority of lawyers never get disciplined for it. And there's zealous advocacy, and there is crossing the line to advocate for your client to act or engage in a way that violates the law. What happens next? Well, today there's going to be a hearing with the judge and both sides going over some of the exhibits. There were 800 exhibits introduced, so they have to go through and parse through. Then you have, until the 22nd, both sides will file closing arguments, post-trial briefing. They waived oral briefing because they just ran out of time because it was a bit of a, a, a mess with so many objections and problems that they knew they couldn't do it. They had to get the witnesses on, and they couldn't stand up there and argue. So the post-trial briefings will act as their closing arguments, and they can only discuss what was brought up as evidence during the trial. And then on the 22nd, the case will be considered submitted. The judge has 90 days to make her decision. Her decision can be appealed to the hearing department, which acts as an appellate level within the state bar court. Whatever is decided within the state bar court system goes to the California Supreme Court. The California Supreme Court is oversees attorney admission and discipline. So every attorney who gets discipline of being disbarred or suspended, it has to get signed off by the California Supreme Court. So and the California State Bar Court is interesting because it's the only court in the nation that deals strictly with attorney discipline. And there's 280,000 you know, attorneys in California. You know, plus, that's a big job. 800 exhibits? I mean, what kind of exhibits? It seems like that's a lot for this case. It's a lot. And this is an unusual case. But there are exhibits like that article I mentioned in the American Mind that Eastman wrote that was part of the bar charges. You know, text that were introduced between parties. Emails, some of the emails included between Eastman and Mike, President Mike Pence's chief counsel. There is uh, pieces of speeches, you know, the speech on the uh, ellipse on January 6th. That's part of the evidence. So there's all kinds of different kinds of evidence that go into 
both the Boris arguments and the defense arguments, or they call them the respondents' arguments. He has said that he's going to take this to the Supreme Court. How often does the Supreme Court consider lawyer disciplinary issues? Very rarely. In California, that happens all the time because the Supreme Court has to sign off on attorney discipline. The U.S. Supreme Court, very rarely. It's going to be interesting to see what happens at the Supreme Court level in California. And then if the U.S. Supreme Court even considers it, will they? I don't know. So the lawyers you spoke to, did they think that the evidence is weighted against Eastman? Yes. That's a quick answer. Yes. (laughs) Head shaking is the best way to describe talking to other lawyers, talking to law professors about the arguments Mr. Eastman was making. You have the right and you have the obligation to represent your clients. You don't have the right to basically hand them a recipe about bomb making. This case is going to be very interesting. Interesting to see how the judge rules, interesting to see how the California Supreme Court rules, and interesting to see if the U.S. Supreme Court takes his appeal. Thanks so much, Joyce. That's Bloomberg Law correspondent Joyce Cutler. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.